So with that said, uh, I'd love to just uh, kick us off. We are in week three of a series called Growing Up. And the series is just walking us through um, the letter of 1 John. And uh, 1 John is uh, a simple letter. It's not overly complicated. In fact, they're very easy lessons that John is trying to give to young believers, to new believers. Again, what's happened in context is the gospel's gone out to the world, and people are believing. And they're in this place where, where they're young. They're, they're children in their faith. And John has got to train them and raise them up. And so this week, um, as part three, we're going to title it Homeschooled. Homeschooled. And John's going to give us, again, some more lessons on what it looks like to mature in your faith. A um, couple things that we looked at um, the last two weeks. Uh, the first was just this idea of, um, you know, being new in the faith means that you're forgiven. It also means that you have fellowship. And that just is defined um, as a community created through Christ where its members take responsibility for one another that are a part of one another. It's not this like care bear thing. Um, it's not this thing where, hey, I'll show up if I feel like it or I'm not feeling great. So it, it's this idea that they, they are a new tight-knit family. Um, so uh, this is what fellowship is. And sometimes in the church, we think of fellowship as like, all right, Baptist covered dish dinner, or like, let's do another potluck. And that's not like what John has in mind. When he's thinking fellowship, John is not thinking potluck. Um, and, and so just to be clear that, that there's something deep that John is thinking that, that unites um, and bonds together these young believers um, and then we looked at last week, this idea of, hey, if you're growing up, if you're maturing, you have to be on guard for strangers. We call it stranger danger. And John has identified three strangers in John 2. He identified the world, he identified uh, a Satan, and he identified sin as things that can come in and, and take our fellowship and, and take our relationship with God and derail it, take it off course, kidnap us out of the home and into the world again. The last thing we talked about was just that these lessons, that, again, First John, it's, it's written on a simple level, but the lessons are not easy. Even, even though they're kind of understood, they're still difficult. They'll, they're still hard. And that's this idea that sometimes easy is still hard when we're living in the world. And as a Christian, I want you to know that. Maybe as someone who's been a Christian for a while, Sometimes easy is still hard when you're living in the world. Um, so I'll share a, a quick story. Um, this last week on Friday, um, it was Corbin's graduation. He graduated preschool. We were really excited for him. So we did this like social distance graduation thing where we rolled up um, to the preschool and they had his little cap and gown there, a little, little picture with his teacher. Um, and so it was really cool. And uh, we were the last family um, that came in. That was our scheduled slot. And so we had a chance to just talk to the teachers a little bit. Seth and I were just asking, um, you know, how's Corbin? Um, you, know, what, you know, what were your favorite parts about Corbin? And so we asked one of the teachers, um, Miss Marianne, what was your favorite part about Corbin? And she goes, Corbin, lunchtime. Corbin was my best cleaner. And, and my wife and I were like, huh, like, ho hold up. Wait, wait a second. Corbin was your best cleaner? Because you see, in our home, Corbin's spot is the messiest of the table. You see, in, in our home, the person who struggles the most to clean up 
is Corbin. And so in some ways, it was this, like, beautiful thing that, wow, like, Corbin cleans up and is behaves and is, like, clean and tidy when he's outside of the home. On the other side, on the other hand, it's just like, Corbin, really? Like, you're their best cleaner? Come on, kid, take that home. Um, and I think this is, this is um, an aspect of we didn't know that about our son. And it was so joyous for us to know that he's cleaning up that he is doing the right things in school, even though it's really hard at home. I think this is what John is writing about. John's trying to say, hey, guys, hey, new children in the faith, um, clean up where you go. Um, look presentable. Help others. Do what is right, because this is what it looks like to be a fellowship. This is what it looks like to know God is that the world takes note of that, and the world sees that. They might not get it, but something that you're doing at home is translating to how you're acting in the world. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for uh, your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word that was given to us to educate us, to train us, uh, to cause us to grow up in righteousness and truth. And Lord, I just pray for the remainder of this morning while we open up your word, God, that, Lord, your word would speak to us. It would speak to our hearts. It would come in and dwell in our living rooms. It would come in and dwell in our cars. It would come in and dwell when we're out on a walk. However we're listening this morning, God, would your word come and dwell richly with us. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to... Um, First uh, John 3, but before you do, um, kids, um, I did want to remind you that um, I do have a little activity for you, a little something that you guys can get going on. Uh, so if you want to grab um, a picture, uh, crayons, um, if you want to grab whatever, whatever you like to grab, um, paper, but I want you guys to draw a picture. And we're going to be going through First John 3, and, and I want you to really think about this picture, kids. Um, adults, too. Just so you know, adults are welcome to draw pictures also. Um, that can be therapeutic. Um, so uh, draw a picture of something that you can do that is kind and loving. So a picture of something you can do that is kind and loving. Maybe it's kind and loving to your parents. Maybe it's kind and loving to your brother and sister, to a neighbor. Maybe it's kind and loving um, uh, to your grandparents. Um, maybe it's kind and loving um, to do a chore. But uh, draw something that for you as a kid is kind and loving to do. Um, with that said, we're just going to um, kick us off in, uh, in reading 1 John 3. And, and uh, what we're going to do is just we'll read through a passage of Scripture, and then we're going to talk about it. So we'll kick off verses 1 through 3, uh, again, in 1 John. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So John kicks this off um, in, in uh, the first verse with this kind of, see? What kind of love that we have? See, can't you see it? And again, he's just talked about um, being adopted in a new family, being forgiven and having fellowship. He's just talked about stranger danger, that there's things out there to get you. 
but that the Father who's brought you into his home loves you. And he says, see what kind of love we have. We are kids of the Father. And I think this is so important. Um, first off, it's just a reminder of our identity. Um, we're kids of the Father. We are loved. But second of all, I think it's important because you have to understand how um, the ancient world looked at kids, how the ancient world looked at gods. And the first part of that is um, the ancient world looked at, at, at gods, um, at deities, at, at kind of the pantheon of Greco-Roman gods as um, being in charge of things and everyone else, every man, woman, and child, uh, particularly kids, they're pawns in this cosmic game of deities. They're pawns, and so you don't know if you uh, angered a god, and so you better sacrifice what is right. Um, you don't know if you're brave or beautiful enough um, so you better do your best in order to be accepted by the God. And, and you know, the gods accepted you if they um, gave you favor. So if your harvest was good, if your business deal went through, um, those are, are what it looked like to follow the gods in the ancient world. The gods didn't love you. In fact, most of the time, the gods were angry and mad at you. So that's the first thing. The second thing, when you look at children, you look at ancient society, um, most kids were expendable in um, Greco-Roman society. Uh, it was a slave society, um, and it wasn't really until you reached maturity. It wasn't until you became an adult that there was this idea that, that your life really mattered. Um, in fact, if um, you were a family and you didn't really want a girl, or you had a kid that was born and you didn't like the way they looked, or they had a, a slight um, disfigurement, you just put them on the side of the mountain to, to perish, to pass away. Um, and that's this idea, is that um, in the ancient world, little kids and children, they didn't really have any authority. They didn't really have any rights. They weren't really loved. They were expendable. And so right away, John is drawing a clear distinction from how the world does things to how the Father does things. See what kind of love we have in the Father. The world does not get it, John goes on to say. And John uses this word world um, 23 times in this letter. And most of the time that John uses it, it's a very negative, um, there, there's no positive identity or association with the world. In fact, the world oftentimes is this system of, of people and spiritual forces that are actively opposed to God that don't understand him. So the world does not get it. And the world does not get it because the world does not get Jesus Christ. The world does not get him, does not receive him, does not see him as the light. John then goes on to say, beloved. And I love this because not only does John say, see what kind of love we have, but he uses that and turns it into a form of address. He turns it into a form, again, of, of building identity. Building um, identity is centered on real love. And John calls these new churches, these new believers, he calls them beloved. And maybe I think there's some of you who are just tuning in and um, this whole social isolation, this whole um, pandemic has been really hard for you. Um, maybe you got your significance as an extrovert in being around people. Um, maybe um, you got some of your security from people being able to pat you on the back, telling you that you're doing a great job. And right now, you just feel like you're not very loved. 
Um, maybe you've just been struggling with yourself. Maybe there's been some, dis- uh, some depression, some anxiety. And this word is meant to cut through the world. The word beloved is meant to cut through all of that and say your love. And so I know you guys are probably, you might be doing some chores right now, or you got kids in the room, or you're on a walk, and you don't necessarily have time to dive into this word. I'd love to encourage you sometime this week, take just a blank sheet of paper, open up your journal, circle this word, beloved, and start, out, start to write out the reasons um, why God loves you. And you know what, most of those reasons, they don't start with, with you, they actually start with God. God loves you. And so take some time to meditate on that. Take some time to meditate on what it looks like to be beloved. Um, John also says something better comes. Something better comes. And he's referring that we're beloved and what we have in Christ, it, it is better and it is coming. We, we don't see it fully yet. We're still kids. We're still children. But when he comes, everything that we are as a child will be revealed because he will be revealed. And then last, he closes in verse 3 with this idea of everyone who hopes in him will purify himself as he is pure. And I wanted to share this thought with you guys. Hope is the catalyst for purity. Because again, maybe you've been um, in this whole pandemic, you've really just been struggling with sin. Um, Maybe it's just something that you don't want to tell anybody about. Maybe it's something that people know that you're just angry or mean or grouchy and and manipulative, and it's just coming out all the more. Hope is the catalyst for purity. Hoping in Jesus Christ that he will take those sins away, that he will purify you, allows you to believe and set your heart and vision towards purity. You see, if you have no hope for purity, your vision won't be on purity. And if your vision won't be on purity, then it's not going to be walking towards God. It's going to be walking farther and farther away from God. It's going to be coming more and more impure. And this is a weird construction. In fact, this is the only time that John uses the word hope in this letter. Hoping in Jesus Christ. And what will allow you to do? It will allow you to purify yourself. In fact, The Bible doesn't like to talk about this in this way. Why? Because Christ has purified it. But there's seven times in the New Testament where this language is used about purifying yourself. And we're not talking about like, you know, doing the work that that Jesus did for us on the cross. But we are talking about what John is talking about, what the New Testament authors were talking about, was people who, who chose to purify themselves because they were still in pursuit of moral excellence. They were still in pursuit of being morally reformed. In other words, there's something in their life that is not morally right. Now, you can imagine John knows that. John's writing this letter to these young believers who didn't grow up according to the law. Some of them might have. They didn't have the law. They didn't know what was right and wrong. And all of a sudden, we're talking about sin. And all of a sudden, we're talking about there's things that, that are morally wrong. And John says, hey, these things that are morally wrong, you've got to purify yourself from them. You've got to say that they can no longer be a part of your life. Um, Well, how do we do that? Let's read. 1 John 3, 4 through 10. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. 
no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So growing up, um, this idea that John says is getting rid of of sin, purifying yourself. And then he, he goes into this interesting phrase that he mentions a couple times. He says, you know. And John will use this phrase several times. You know. And we know that knowledge of something does not equal right conduct. Um, my kids know that, hey, if daddy tells them to pick up a pair of shoes, they, they should pick up that pair of shoes and put it back where it goes. We have two boxes in our home, one by the front door and one in their rooms. But the problem is sometimes when I tell my kids to pick up their shoes, when I come back in five minutes, I find one shoe's put up, one's where it is, but magically another pair of shoes has appeared, and also there's a random sock there. Just knowing what to do does not equal the right conduct. I think the same is true for Christians. Oftentimes we know the Bible verse. We know what we should do, and yet there's still something trapping us, ensnaring us in sin. Hope is the catalyst for purity. So how can we put our vision and hope in Jesus Christ so we can pursue purity? Um, John's opponents, there are people that kind of came in, as Frank shared in the last two weeks, um, came in and they were strangers, they were false teachers, and they, they made a big deal about this knowing thing. And they, they said, really, you've got to know the right answer. Knowing the right answer is what saves you. And what you do with your body, um, what you do like on a fleshly realm, that doesn't really matter because you see you're like activating your mind. And your mind is what really matters. Um, I, I don't think they had marijuana in the Roman world, but it sounds like they were tripping on something, right? What you do with your body doesn't really matter, but what happens to your mind, that's where it's at, man. And that's kind of like what his opponents were talking about. These people who came in, these, these people who are, who are these Gnostics, who said it's all about your knowledge and it's not really about what you're doing. And what John is trying to do is saying, no, listen, what you know should match up with your conduct. They should be the same. There shouldn't be dissonance. And so then John has to get back to the gospel. He has to get back to why Jesus came. And he does that, and he says two great, beautiful truths. Um, truths that are load-bearing truths for our lives. Um, man, this is uh, so great. So again, if you're taking notes at home, these are the two things in 1 John 3 that John writes. Christ and the Son of God appeared for two reasons. The first, to take away sin. The text says he was revealed, he was made manifest, he, he was um, shown to the world at the right time so that he could take away their sins. The second thing, Christ 
the Son of God appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And this word here is fascinating when you start to study this word that John uses, because you could say destroy, but one of the other meanings of the word here is this idea of, of being loosed, that the devil's works have been um, uh, loosed. And what I mean by that is in, in loosing is that the devil has taken and he's tied up things. He's tied up people. And the Son of God has come into this world to take people who are captive, who have been tied up, who have been shackled to false gods, who are slaves to sin, and Jesus Christ has come and he has unbound them. He has freed them. And it's based on this knowledge that you should now have right conduct. If you're free, why in the world would you go back and shackle yourself to sin? Why in the world would you say that Christ hasn't really taken away the sins here? He's just taken away the sins in your mind. It makes zero sense. And so John starts off his argument with the gospel. In fact, everything that we should do and think should start off with the gospel. Jesus Christ takes away sins. Jesus Christ destroys the work of the devil. And he has freed and loosed people once again to be in the image of God. Redeemed, ransomed, and this is beautiful. Sin does not belong in the life of the believer. And I think in, in our American Christianity, we've kind of compromised here. We've said, well, like, yeah, sin um, is bad. And, you know, if, if you sin, you know, ask forgiveness. Um, but there's some things that you might never be able to defeat. And I think what John is trying to, to help people understand is sin has no place in the life of a believer. And um, I, I think it's important for us to know that we're talking about, like, right, habitual, unconfessed, unrepentant sin. This idea um, of sin that just is you're committing again and again and again. Uh, you're claiming to know Christ, but you're really um, not confessing this. Uh, you're really unrepentant. Um, you're really just angry that you have to, to pursue moral excellence, and so you're not. And what John is saying in these verses is, hey, check yourself, because you might not even be a child of God. So when we teach through this, then we come to this kind of uncomfortable um, realization of, well, wait a second, does God want us to be perfect? Like, I, I have to have no sin? Um, I have to live a life where I can't make a single mistake? I can't mess up? And that's not what we're saying. Um, the big question is, do I have to be perfect? And um, John does two awesome things. He outlines what it looks like to be um, a child of God, and he looks like what it looks like to be a child of the devil. And so real quick, we're going to look at this chart. You see a child of God hopes in him and purifies himself. Their vision is set on Christ and purity. A child of God abides in Jesus Christ. A child of God does what is just, and a child of God is born of God. Uh, in contrast, we look at the children of the devil, and we look at the children of the devil, they're one who commits sin. But not only do they commit sin, they just remain in iniquity. They remain in that sin. They sin, and by sinning over and over and over again, they prove that they have neither seen Christ nor known him. Because if they have, 
then they would realize that he takes away sin and that he frees people and he destroys the works of the devil. Third thing, a child of the devil does what is not just, not of God. And last, a child of, of, of the devil is going to continue to sin and keep on sinning because they're not a child of God, they're a child of the devil. Um, this is the only place in the scripture where uh, John talks about this. He t- also talks about it a lot in his gospel, in John 6, chapter 6. Um, and uh, we're going to just keep on going. Um, 1 John 3, uh, 11 through 15. 1 John 3, 11 through 15. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out to death to life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Uh, we're going to go back to the, ge- back to the beginning, um, and, and John reaches back to the beginning. And we're not sure if he's reaching back to the beginning in his gospel, um, when they're sitting around at the Last Supper, where Jesus gives them a new command. Or, right, John is talking about Cain and Abel. And so he's reaching all the way back to the beginning. And this is something that John does. He loves to go back to the beginning. And so we come to the second story, um, the second story of humanity in Genesis, Cain and Abel. Um, And if you're not familiar with the story, in short, Genesis 4 um, shares that Abel offered a better sacrifice to God. Um, Cain did not, and uh, Cain ended up um, killing Abel. Um, In Hebrews 11, we find that it wasn't necessarily the sacrifice, it was that Abel offered it to God via faith. But we still come back to this question of, well, why, why did Cain kill Abel? Like, and how does this tie into love? And how does this tie into being a son of God? And this is what John says. John says, listen, Cain's deeds were evil, but Abel's were righteous. And so when you read the story in Genesis 4, you're like, well, huh, how was Abel's deeds righteous and Cain's were evil? And if we look at Genesis 4 as, as God informing humanity how to worship. And looking at Cain's sacrifice and saying, hey, Cain, um, appreciate this offering, um, but by faith, Abel offered a sacrifice of blood. And I would like for you to offer that same sacrifice. And then we see Cain, right? He just kind of stomps off. He's mad. He's upset. Someone else has, has, has did something better than he has. I know that's never happened to any of us before. We've never gotten angry or upset. We've never um, been a little jealous that someone has maybe gotten more praise or recognition. And so Cain is angry. And in in the text in Genesis 4, it says God comes to Cain and speaks to him and says, Hey, Cain, sin is crouching at your door, but you've got to learn to control it. You've got to learn to be self-controlled. In fact, 
you should hope in the words I'm saying to you because they're giving you a vision for purity so that you can walk out that purity. You can have moral excellence towards your brother. And Cain categorically rejects God's advice, God's words, God's command, and he takes his brother out into a field and he kills him. The first story in the garden was how Adam and Eve broke the commands that God gave them to be in right relationship with God. The second story is how Cain ignores and breaks the commands of God and how to be in right relationship with his brother. Cain's deeds were evil. Cain chose not to listen to God, number one. And then the second thing he chose to do was he chose to get what he wanted and do what he wanted and kill his brother. Um, John talks a little bit more and draws on this negative example of the Sermon on the Mount. Again, John isn't just reaching back to Genesis. He also reaches into the Sermon on the Mount, a sermon that he sat and listened to Jesus. And he, he reminded his readers that if you have hate in your heart towards your brother, you're committing murder. John also draws on what Jesus told him in his own gospel. In John 15, 12 through 13, this is such a, a, a precious passage. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Jesus calls his disciples his friends. This is what love is, that you lay down your life. And then I love what John does is he gives us this hypothetical situation. And I love this because um, it's a practical example nestled into the Word of God that has the same implications for us today. And he gives us this, this situation where what if someone has the world's goods and sees something going on, sees a brother in need, and closes his heart? Where is God's love? And so a couple things. Number one, the world's goods. This is an example of the world's good. This is neutral. Like, the world's goods are neutral. But someone has possessions, money, finances. They have them. They see a brother. And this is like a, this example, this, this text here, isn't like, oh, they just like see him on the side of the road. It's not like a glance. But that they know the situation. Uh, the, the word here is that there's an intimate knowledge of what's going on. Someone sees the situation. And then they close their heart. And this is a weird word for heart here in this passage. And it, and it essentially means that they close off their pity, their compassion, their conviction. And it's this idea that they've shut down their heart to helping someone. It's this deep inner conviction that they have chosen not to help, even though they have seen what is going on. And so what uh, my kids are in here, they're like yelling at me like, Dada, they see me preaching, um, super cute. Um, anyways, um, John closes that passage by saying, little kids, truth in action matters. So we're going to read the last, um, the last few verses. And I was going to share, um, too, if you're a kid, um, make sure to, to um, send those pictures to Awaken Q&A at gmail what is something that you can do that is kind and loving so parents email those pictures in um, but we're going to read the last few verses by this you shall know that we are of truth and reassure our heart before him for whenever our hearts condemn us 
God is greater than our heart and knows everything. Beloved, if your heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God, and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So just to close, um, when our hearts condemn us, the passage says, God is greater. And we read this sometimes and we're like, whew, amen. When, when our hearts condemn us, when we're not doing the right action, um, God will forgive us and be kind. And I'd love to say that the quick answer, no, that's not actually what the passage is saying. The passage is saying God will judge your heart. The passage actually comes from Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 9, where John reaches back into the Torah. The same exact scenario happens. Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 9. But this time John isn't trying to teach it from the Torah. He's trying to teach it to people who've been raised without the law. And he says that, listen, when your heart condemns you, when your heart's saying that's wrong, you don't need to say, oh, phew, like God will forgive us. Like, whew, like God's greater, he's kinder. No, it's saying actually God's going to judge you and what you need to do is get on your knees and reason with your heart that is being mean and closed and not pitying someone. Reason with your heart with the word of God and change your heart. Get in the presence of God and allow his word to change you. This is what John is trying to say. It's not just trying to say, oh, God is greater and he'll forgive you. John is trying to say, listen, young children, there's going to be impulses and sins and things that you do that you need to get on your heart before God and repent of. And then what's beautiful, when you come into the presence of God and your heart doesn't condemn you, when it shows you that you're living in fellowship, that you're living in love, then guess what? You have all the confidence in the world to pray. And to pray because you're obeying God's command. You're doing what is pleasing to him. And what is his command? That you believe in Jesus Christ and love him and live in him. This is what it says in John 6, 29. And this is that good, right, end of the service where it's that good Baptist close where it's like, if you've not believed in Jesus Christ, now is the time. And that's true. Now is the time. Reason with your heart because God sent Jesus Christ to take away your sins and to destroy the works of the devil in your life. And John wants these young churches, these young believers to know that. Get out of whatever sin is ensnaring you. Um, I just want to encourage you guys. Maybe um, that's not you. Maybe you um, have already believed in Christ. What about this habitual sin? Um, stop doing it in secret. Confess it. Be transparent about it. It's going to be difficult and it's going to be tough, but prove that you're a child of God by being serious about getting rid of your sin. Set your vision on hoping in him and purifying your life. Um, John ends with a cliffhanger. Well, how, how do I know that I'm a child of God? How, how do I know that I'm doing all these things? And he says, you'll know it by the Holy Spirit. And then chapter four is all about the Holy Spirit. Um, I'm going to pray real quick, and then um, we're going to switch over to looking at some pictures from kids, um, and really excited about that. Um, so 
Um, I'm also going to bring up two helpers, but I'm going to pray real quick. Um, Father, thank you so much for your grace, for your goodness, for your kindness, for your truth, for your love. Thank you, God, that you uh, have loved us, that you are teaching us as children how to live and how to be pure, and that you've taken away our sins, and that, God, you have freed us from sin, that you have freed us from the devil. And so we can walk in purity and righteousness and do so so the world sees. We pray this in your name. Amen.